Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. I am Cole, if I haven't met you, which there's a lot of you I don't think I've met. I am not Kevin Choate, the college pastor, but Kevin is somewhere doing something, not teaching, so he asked me to come and teach. But a little bit about me, I am a senior at OU. I've been going to Wildwood for about a year and a half now, and I worked here over the summer as an intern. Definitely not qualified to be here, but Kevin asked me nonetheless, so let's jump right into it. Today, our main idea is going to be that the kingdom of God's value system is upside down. And because the kingdom of God's value system is upside down, we will undoubtedly face opposition and persecution. But there is a blessedness in the Christian life. Um, So as I prepared for the sermon this week, um, I struggled to come up with something to try and grab your attention. Usually, Kevin or whoever teaches usually plays a video or tells a story or asks rhetorical questions to try to grab your attention real quick and get you focused on what we're talking about. Uh, But as I met with Kevin to go over this week's lesson, we came to a funny but amazing realization that the truths in these verses are just so beautifully simple, yet at the same time, They were such radical statements at the time that Jesus said them, and they still are today. These words of Jesus himself are the attention grabber, and these words of Jesus need no introduction. So with that being said, in the text today, we're going to see that there's a problem. The first of these beautiful truths is when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The problem is that not a single one of us is inherently naturally poor in spirit. The problem addressed in these verses is the universal issue of pride that every single one of us has. In mere Christianity, I think I have a quote from C.S. Lewis to pull up. If not, it's okay. But in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, can't keep their head about girls, or drink, or even that they are cowards, but I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. At the time, at the, and at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more that we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride. He later goes on to say, pride leads to every other vice or sin. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Humility in the Christian life must precede everything else. It is the first step in obedience toward a relationship with Jesus. We cannot be a follower of Christ or an heir of the kingdom of heaven unless we first recognize that we are unworthy of the kingdom of heaven. But our goal today is going to be to see the blessedness of the Christian life that we can have. Today we're going to see that even though the kingdom of God's value system is upside down, 
we will undoubtedly face persecution and opposition, but there is blessedness in this Christian life. We're going to see three main ideas uh, that show how the kingdom of God's value system is upside down. The first is that humility is a requirement. The second is that it's not about what we do, but who we are. And the third is rejoicing in suffering. So this is the first sermon of a new series on the Sermon of the Mount. So I'm going to give a little bit of context of the book of Matthew, but mainly to the Sermon on the Mount. So before chapter 5, where the Sermon on the Mount starts, Matthew displays Jesus as a sovereign king. The first thing we see is a genealogy. We see Jesus' birth, and we see that he comes from the line of David, who is the great king of Israel. John the Baptist paves the way for this coming king. And John baptizes Jesus shortly after Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Jesus then begins his ministry in Galilee. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus then calls his disciples. He teaches throughout all of Galilee. He teaches in synagogues. He heals people. News is spreading fast of this man named Jesus, and large crowds are starting to follow him. Jesus sees these crowds, and he goes up on a mountain with his disciples, and he begins to teach. This is where we pick up and begin our series today with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon by Jesus himself. And because a sermon is taught by Jesus, it's widely considered to be the greatest sermon ever taught because Jesus is the greatest teacher to have ever lived. The sermon spans from chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, but today we're going to focus in on these first uh, 12 verses of the sermon. A pastor named Sinclair Ferguson describes the Beatitudes as Christian Living 101. The Beatitudes are the foundation for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. To understand the Beatitudes is to understand the Sermon on the Mount. These values are not just something that we're told to do. It's not just a list of things we ought to be doing. Rather, these verses are telling us the blessedness of what we are as Christians. So with that being said, if you'll read along with me, I'm going to read the passage again. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So point one today is that humility is a requirement. Again, this is not just something Jesus is telling us to do. We can actually flip the order of the wording in this verse and say, if you are in the kingdom of heaven, then you enjoy the blessing of the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is not talking about like financially poor. Jesus is not just saying, you got to be poor and then you'll be blessed. Rather, he's talking about our spiritual bankruptcy. We have to recognize that we are utterly spiritually bankrupt before God. We bring nothing of worth to offer God. 
Isaiah 64, 6 says, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. As we continue to look at verse 3, uh, we see that we are so filled up with ourselves, we aren't poor in spirit, that there's no room for Jesus in a lot of our lives. We must be emptied before we can be filled. The gospel or Jesus is not just something that you just like add on to your life or just put with everything else that you kind of have going on, add it along to your desires, what you want from life. The gospel empties you of all that you are and all that you have and fills you with everything that he is. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Humility is a requirement for the followers of Christ. Being humble requires a recognition of how sinful and depraved we are. And after we recognize our sin, then we can mourn over it. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the exact point of it being upside down. People who mourn don't seem to be blessed. They're sad. They're mourning. But this isn't just talking about being sad. Jesus is talking about a specific kind of mourning, and it's a mourning over our sin. The word mourn actually means to experience deep grief. So are we grieved by the things that grieve the God that we claim to love? Do we hate the things that God hates? A godly mourner will have true sorrow for his sins. However, his first concern is that his sin actually hurts and harms God. His first concern is not how his sin affects his own reputation or life. He's much more concerned with God. Psalm 119, 136 says, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. 2 Corinthians seven ten says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance that is without regret, leading to salvation. But so we see that the Spirit comforts those who are honest about their own sin and are humble enough to ask for forgiveness and healing. Those who hide their sin or try to justify it before God and others can never know the comfort that comes from a pure heart that mourns over our sin. But mourning over our sin leads to comfort that only God can provide. However, we must stay humble in that comfort and not continue on in sin or boast in our sin. Verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is like a spirit of gentleness or humility, similar to what we saw in verse 3. Humility not only to God, but also in relationship with others. Meekness above all else describes the character and attitude of Jesus. I think Philippians 2, 5 through 8 kind of helps us see this. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. This is the ultimate display of humility. So we see that the humble man mourns over his sin, which leads to this attitude of meekness, a spirit of humility once again. But the meek and humble man understands that he is unrighteous on his own. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
So a Christian will have an active spiritual desire for God, to know him and to grow to be more like him. We know we'll fall short. We know we'll fail on the path of growing in holiness and trying to be more righteous. But we keep going. We keep pursuing him. We don't stop when we fail because there's forgiveness. If anyone wishes to have a satisfied heart, he will seek after God and his righteousness, and his heart will be satisfied. That is a promise from God. Matthew 6.33 helps us see this also. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So to summarize these first four verses, let's think about it like this. Do you recognize your sin, and do you mourn over it, or do you love your sin? Do you find yourself enjoying your sin, relishing it, not wanting to give it up? Maybe you even hide your sin or conceal it from other people and God. Do you maybe put it off and decide that maybe someday when it feels right, you'll actually evaluate your life, look at your sin, and then ask forgiveness? Are you subjecting yourself to his word day after day? Do you depend on it? Do you hunger and thirst for it? Are you going to him in prayer? Are you actively desiring to know him and be more like him? I know I'm guilty of all of these things and of not doing them. But as we think of how to apply this, if we truly believe that God knows what's best and he has our best interests at heart, why do we not go to him with these things? Why do we not obey him? Wouldn't it be so much better if we just submitted ourselves to God in all of these things rather than trying to do it on our own, when we know that we can't. We can and should surrender everything in our lives to him. Not just the things we want to give him, but everything. So let's take a few minutes to discuss this, and we'll be back with part two. All right, we're going to get back to teaching if you guys want to wrap up discussion. All right. So as we kind of get back to the teaching. We've just seen how humility is a requirement for the Christian. But the last verse we looked at is how the Christian hungers and thirsts to be in right relationship with God. However, it's not just right relationship with God, but also right relationship with other people. And this leads us to our second point, which is about how we ought to think of others. Point two is we are, it's not about what we do, but it's about who we are. Verse 7, if you want to read along, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is not getting something that we deserve. It is the withholding of just punishment from God. Every single one of us deserves to be separated from God for all of eternity because of our sin. We deserve to be punished, but... God is a merciful God and made a way for us to be in right relationship with him through the atoning sacrifice of his own son. Titus 3.5, I think, helps us see this. It says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So because we have been shown mercy, we can and ought to have an attitude of mercy and forgiveness toward others because it's who we are. Only someone who's been humbled by a holy and merciful God can be merciful to others. 
Another way that we're going to see that it's not about what we do, but who we are, is that we are pure in heart. Verse 8 says, Bless. We see all over the Bible that the problem with man is not only this issue of pride that we talked about, but it's a heart issue. That man is not pure in heart. Genesis 6-5, man was great on earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jesus also later on in the Sermon on the Mount talks about adultery and murder and how those are sins, but he elevates both of those sins. And he says that if you lust after a woman or if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed both of those things. So it's not just the physical act of murdering somebody, but it's what's in your heart. Are you pure in heart? Proverbs 4.23, I think, helps us see this. It says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It's clear that God does not only care about what we do, but who we are at heart. He wants our heart. He wants our entire being. All that we are and all that we have is emptied, and we're filled with everything that he is. And so the final way that we see it's not about what we do, but who we are, is that we desire for there to be peace between God and others. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This verse is not necessarily talking about making peace with others how we would initially think. It's not just talking about like, oh, just agree with somebody so that there's peace. Don't have confrontation with somebody about what you believe because you just want to make peace. Rather, what's being talked about in these verses is peace between God and sinners. Jesus laid down his life to make peace between God and sinners. As believers, we are called to carry this message of peace and share it with the world. Colossians 1, 19-20, I think, helps us see this. It says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. So do we desire for all people to have a relationship with God and to be at peace with him? Because Jesus says that the sons of God are peacemakers, and this is something we will do. But after looking at how we ought to think of others, we will look at yet another countercultural idea that believers can and should rejoice in suffering. So point three today is going to be rejoicing in suffering. Verse 10 and 11 say, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So the first thing I notice is how these verses just don't, they don't just say, blessed are those who have been persecuted but rather persecuted for the sake of righteousness or for the evil that's set against us because of Jesus in his name. If we're following God and living a righteous life, there will be persecution. There will be opposition. We can count on it. The Bible tells us this. But if you're, and if you're open and you talk about your faith and what you believe and you live it out, you will be insulted. You will be persecuted on some level People will look down upon you, or at the very least, they will question why you believe what you believe, because it's so countercultural and doesn't make sense to the fallen man. Lost people don't know that they're lost. 
they don't understand. But Acts 5.41, I think, helps us see this also. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for shame for his name. This is the attitude of the apostles. They have just been ridiculed and suffered under a council, and their first response when they leave is, wow, we have been counted worthy. This should be our response to any suffering, whether it is just being questioned. Why do you believe that? That's ridiculous. How could you say that? Whatever it might be, this should be our response. This is a beautiful truth that we can have hope and peace even in suffering and persecution. And as we reach our final verse, we see something totally different. Verse 12, if you follow along, says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All of these other verses have been what we are. Not what we should do, but what we are as Christians. But this final verse is a command to rejoice and be glad. Not just just because we should be glad or just because we should rejoice, but because we have hope. We have a reward waiting for us in heaven. And that we shouldn't be surprised when we're persecuted because it's happened to every follower of God that we see in the Bible. I mean, we look at the lives of the apostles. Peter is crucified upside down. Another apostle is boiled to death. All of these horrible things we see happen over and over again. Yet many times we're surprised when we face opposition and persecution. We don't understand, but we should not be surprised at that. And I think 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 helps put this into perspective. It says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our suffering and persecution is not meaningless. It's not pointless. God has a purpose and he has a plan for each and every moment of our affliction and our suffering. And we can and should, we're commanded to rejoice and be glad in that. So to put Jesus' words into perspective and make it a little bit more practical and personal, I'm gonna tell a story about something that's been going on in my life. So right now I have two nephews, but one of my nephews, he's four years old, and he's in a battle with cancer. Right now, that would be so easy for me and my family to just look at that at face value and say, that's meaningless. What's the point? Why should he have to go through that? What good could possibly come from a child who doesn't even understand what that is to have to deal with that, to be in a hospital all the time? He doesn't understand. So how could anything good come from that? My eyes and my feelings, what I see, instinctively would tell me that this is meaningless. How could there possibly be a purpose in a child having cancer? However, what we saw in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, is that we can't just look to what we see or what we feel, but we look to what we cannot see. Because I can't always see what God's doing 
in my life, in my family's life, in his life. And because I can't, I can't know how he's using that to bring glory to himself. But I can trust that he is using that to bring glory to himself and to use that. So I have hope in this light momentary affliction. And I have hope that it's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. This is the beautiful truth that we have hope and meaning and comfort in our suffering. So as we look to apply what we've heard today, we can't look to what we see or feel. We must always point ourselves back to the truth of God's word and his promises. Our feelings and our eyes, what we see, are deceitful. We have to look to the source and the author of truth. So as we conclude today, we've seen three main ideas of how the kingdom of God's value system is upside down. We are told that humility is a requirement. We're told that it's not about what we do, but who we are. And we're told that we can rejoice in suffering. After looking at today's passage, we see all of those things and how they fit together under this idea that we can't be prideful. We're told to empty ourselves, set aside our desires, what we want, and to be humble, to look at what we are, and to rejoice in our suffering. So as we once again think of how to apply this, I think of how Jesus is the culmination of all of these beatitudes or blessings. We should be looking for these values in our lives. Jesus was poor in spirit. He humbled himself. He became a man was obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Jesus mourned. Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem and wept over it. Jesus was meek. He was humble. He was gentle. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was righteous. He's the only perfect righteous man to have ever lived and that will ever live. Jesus was a peacemaker. Not that he just agreed with everybody, never had confrontation. In fact, it's the opposite. But Jesus is the one who provided peace between God and sinners like us. Jesus was not guilty of anything, and yet he was beaten. He was flogged, he was given a crown of thorns, he was nailed to a cross, stabbed in his side. He was mocked, rejected, and falsely accused of blasphemy. This is the persecution that we see in verse 10 and 11. These aren't just things that we should be trying to do or being better at. We are called to be imitators of Christ, to follow him. These verses show us the blessedness of what we are and that we get to experience as Christians and this hope that we have. So with that being said, let's pray. Father, we just want to humbly come to you and thank you for the time that you've given us. Um, Thank you for these blessings that most people would look at and not see them as blessings. We don't want to be humble. We want to be happy. We don't want to mourn. We don't often hunger and thirst for your righteousness. 
We don't show mercy to others. We aren't pure in heart many times. We don't often look to make peace between God and sinners. Help us to understand and apply these truths to our life, that they would be real and that they would be apparent in our lives, and that we would just have a desire to know you and grow closer to you. We thank you again for the time that you've given us. Pray that everything we would say and do would glorify and honor you today. In your name we pray. Amen.